So we're finishing off our uh, series on Easter journeys. Um, and we've looked at a number of journeys that Jesus took with his disciples around Easter. And tonight is our um, final sermon in that series. So I'm following on from Ryan's message, um, which was about the road to Emmaus. And I'll be speaking about one final journey. This was a journey that Jesus took with his disciples, his last earthly journey, a short climb up a hill outside Jerusalem. And our passage for this evening is the first chapter of Acts, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to that. And we read in Acts chapter 1 of Jesus' final moments on earth. As we read the story of this final walk, this final time with Jesus' believers, um, I'd ask you to think about what the disciples must have been thinking and feeling during these last few moments. And as Jesus leaves, at least bodily, this fledgling church, this group of early believers, think about what Jesus leaves them with. So I'm going to read um, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." And with that promise, Jesus was gone. It's interesting to imagine what Jesus' disciples were thinking at this moment. No doubt they were stunned by what had just happened. Jesus had literally risen into the sky and disappeared. He'd completed what he'd come to do, and yet, in many ways, his ministry, the building of his kingdom here on earth, was just beginning. The angels had made clear that there was a job to do. But these first believers, alone on a hilltop, probably felt overwhelmed at the task at hand. You can imagine them saying, did he say to the ends of the earth? How are we supposed to do that without him? Why is he left now? Amidst the wonder and awe of it all, perhaps the disciples had the nagging feeling that Jesus staying with them would have been the better option. He just got back. Surely, he was going to lead this new movement. There was more to learn. There was more to teach. Why now? I know I've felt that way in the past. 
having Jesus around, physically present, would certainly have cleared up many of the doubts or the questions or the struggles that I've faced. But in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples that it is to their advantage that he goes away. Do we believe this? Do we really believe that Jesus' ascension was a good thing? Well, I believe that this passage, Acts chapter 1, it teaches us that it was so good, that Jesus didn't leave his disciples alone, he didn't leave them unprepared, and he doesn't do so with us either. I think our, our big question this evening is, how did Christ equip his church for the task at hand? How did Christ equip his church for the task at hand? What did he leave them with, and what does he leave us with? Well, I think this passage, it points to three ways that Christ equipped his disciples. So if you're taking notes, I'll give them to you um, at the outset. So three things uh, that are going to be the focus of my message, three things that Jesus left with his disciples. The first is, Jesus left his disciples with proofs of his resurrection. Second, he left them with the power of the Holy Spirit. And third, with the promise of his return. So he left them with the proofs of his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of his return. The alliteration wasn't intentional, but it worked. So let's start with the proofs. If you look at verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, um, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. So these proofs that Jesus provided, this conclusive evidence that he was alive, that he had risen from the dead, were vital. Luke gives an example of these proofs in the final chapter of his gospel, going back one book when Jesus appears to his disciples. Jesus appears and he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Luke highlights these proofs of Jesus' return to life because they were vital for the continued life of the early church. Jesus' disciples needed to know that Jesus wasn't just another prophet whose ministry had ended with his death. Jesus' miracles had been the proof of his words during his ministry. They'd given authority to what he'd said. And his victory over death, his resurrection, this is the final proof, the ultimate proof that what he said was true that his claims to be the Son of God were true. So Christ was raised from the dead, and we can see the impact of this truth on the disciples. After his ascension, they, quote, worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. So we see that Jesus' disciples were convinced. They worshipped Jesus as God. You don't worship a man, you worship God, and they worshipped him. There was no more doubt, the mystery, the parables, the veiled language was over. They could now, with confidence, proclaim what they knew to be true. I remember reading a book called The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ by Philip Pullman. It was part of my required reading for university. And through, though claiming to be fiction, this book is essentially a distortion of Jesus' life. It takes many of the best-known stories from the gospel, and it twists them to devastating effect. Jesus in the story is presented as a good man and just a good man. And his life and his teachings are recorded and embellished by his devious twin, Christ. Reading this book really had a negative 
impact on me for some time. Um, whenever I read the Gospels, I couldn't help but have these distorted stories come to mind. And I was sitting in the lecture uh, in the PFC on this book, and we were coming towards the end of the lecture. Our professor had been expounding on Pullman's clever subversion of Christian beliefs, how his work had exposed Christ as a mere creation of his church, something that Jesus had never intended himself to be. But as the lecture drew to a close, the professor took a moment to mention Jesus' disciples. And he said something like this. It's worth noting that all of Jesus' disciples would end up dying for their faith, many of them facing a grisly and violent end rather than recount. And within a few minutes, that was the lecture over. I was gobsmacked. The lecturer had, in one sentence, refuted the thrust of his two-hour lecture. I mean, Jesus could hardly be merely a good man, a fabrication of the church used for power and control, if his disciples gave their very lives for him in defense of this message. They were the ones accused of making up these lies about Christ for their own gain, and yet they're willing to die for these supposed lies. If they were aiming for power, prestige, or wealth, Dying was counterproductive, to say the least. The disciples' deaths are proof that they were utterly convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, that death was not the end for them. Usually, when a radical leader dies, his followers are dispersed and the movement dies. But Acts shows just the opposite. The early believers had seen the risen Christ. They touched his wounds in his hands, his feet, his side. They'd witnessed him rise into heaven and they were filled with an unshakable conviction that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. This was the bedrock of their faith, and it's the bedrock of our faith today. If Jesus did the impossible, if he really came back to life, then all that he said is true, and his resurrection gives us confidence. Like his disciples, we too have proofs of Jesus' resurrection. Now, going into these proofs in any detail, is beyond the scope of what I can cover. But I urge you, go and have a look at the proofs, at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence is compelling. Just to give you some really brief examples. Um, for example, Jesus' disciples, they went from fearful, you know, locked in the upper room at his death to fearlessly spreading the gospel throughout Asia after his resurrection. The Jewish leaders at the time, for another example, made no attempt to disprove the empty tomb even when they could have silenced rumors by producing a body. Or take the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 people over a period of 40 days after his resurrection, all of whom could have their testimony checked by the skeptics of the day, and yet again, we have no credible objections arising to Jesus' resurrection from that period. It's easy at times to feel intimidated or under attack for believing in Jesus. I've certainly been made to feel foolish or ignorant by very intelligent people. But history weighs in heavily on the side of the resurrection, if only we take the time to investigate it. Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts are good places to start. In them we see accurate historical accounts documenting the remarkable life of Jesus and the incredible spread of his church following his death. I've personally also found uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, really helpful. But there are loads of resources out there that you can use. 
Just to illustrate the impact of this, a few years ago, I was speaking with a Christian friend who was about to sign on and join the Royal Marines. He was talking about maintaining the confidence in his faith in a non-Christian or even hostile environment. And he said this to me. He said, for a long time, I had doubts about the truth of Christianity. But I really looked into the resurrection and I know it is true. I've looked into the resurrection and I know it is true. It was so great to hear the confidence that this guy had because of the resurrection. And this confidence is on offer to all of us. We can know that Jesus is the Son of God as he says, and so we can trust him with our lives. But Jesus didn't leave his disciples with just this confidence. Luke, after pointing to the proofs that the disciples could look back on, shows us how Jesus prepared his disciples for the task at hand. He built their foundation with the proofs, and now he gave them the power of the Holy Spirit, which is my second point, the power of the Holy Spirit. In our passage this evening from the first chapter of Acts, it kind of acts as a bit of a hinge between Luke and Acts. Much like the intro to your favorite TV show, it recaps what's past to refresh your memory and sets the scene for what's about to happen. And if Acts were an episode, it would be a truly action-packed episode. It's jammed full of jaw-dropping stories recounting the adventurous, often dangerous, and miraculous acts of the apostles, detailing the rapid spread of the church from its first days in Jerusalem, through Asia Minor, into Europe, and eventually to the very heart of the superpower of its day, Rome. Time and again, God intervenes miraculously. He saves his apostles and displays his power through signs and wonders. We see powerful and compelling sermons, the likes preached by Peter and Stephen, cut men to the heart and leave them unable to withstand the truth of their message. We see thousands come to faith at a time and the Holy Spirit descend on the church, Gentiles and Jews alike. We see Saul of Tarsus miraculously converted from a zealous opponent of Christ, killing Christians to a trailblazing apostle to the Gentiles and a pillar of the church. We see Christ's small band of followers turn the world upside down in little over three decades after his ascension. How did they do this? How is all this possible? Well, Luke gives us a clue in verses four and five. Have a look at four and, four and five. Jesus ordered them not to depart for, from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse eight again says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And this promise is the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. Jesus says that through this power, his disciples will be able to witness to Jerusalem and eventually the whole earth. The Holy Spirit is the key and the answer to our question. How are these miraculous events and acts possible? They were possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. To illustrate this point, let's look at the disciples in this, this time of waiting, so between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The disciples are described in Acts as being in the upper room in Jerusalem, united in devoting themselves to prayer. In Luke, they're described as worshiping with great joy, staying continually at the temple, praising God. 
So these believers, they're not afraid between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost. They're not locked up in a room hiding, nor are they powerless. They're joyful. They're of one accord. They're praying and praising God, both privately and publicly in the temple. But something key is missing. They're not yet evangelizing anyone. They're not spreading the gospel. The church isn't growing in power. Hearts are not being convicted and changed. In both Acts and Luke, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that when it comes at Pentecost, everything changes. The Holy Spirit comes in power upon the believers and completely transforms them, enabling them to proclaim the gospel with boldness and power. The disciples are transformed, but not only that, their ministry becomes effective because it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is what we see happening in Acts. I mean, the Holy Spirit is working powerfully. There's an explosion of new belief. Acts 2.42, there were added to that day 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day. Acts 4 verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men who came who came to faith about 5,000. It's only with the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit that our efforts for evangelism can be successful. No amount of effort or money or resources or passion can guarantee church growth and hearts convicted. The Holy Spirit changes hearts, not us. In Acts, the church explodes and spreads in power and with joy because the Holy Spirit is working in and through the early church disciples. The Spirit's coming also seems to put a final piece into place for the disciples and their understanding of the kingdom of God. In verse six, uh, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Clearly, they're expecting something immediate, maybe the establishment of the kingdom of God, Israel's liberation, the overthrow of the Romans, the fulfillment and consummation of Old Testament prophecy. But Jesus points out that his kingdom will be established as a process. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples fully understand that the kingdom of God is not a matter of a military conquest or a galvanizing leader, or uniting Israel under a new covenant. It's a movement of simple Christ followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, transforming the world in an upside-down kingdom. The weak are strong, and the foolish shame the wise. This is no different today. We, his church, are one of God's main ways of reaching the world. But he doesn't just leave us to it. He promises the power of the Holy Spirit. So our question is then, well, what difference does the Holy Spirit make? If we look at Acts, um, we see that the Holy Spirit gives real joy and both the courage to speak and the words to say. It gives joy that shines even in the face of death. It gives courage to witness boldly to the lost, even to hostile crowds. And it gives words from the Spirit himself. And so if we have the Spirit as his church, what does it look like for us in our personal evangelism, in our day-to-day, 
What does it look like for us to be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? I think there's, there's two steps. First, we must pray, asking the Spirit to show us who to speak to, asking the Spirit to change their hearts and to draw them to Jesus, asking the Spirit for courage, asking the Spirit for his words to say, and asking for strength to maintain our integrity in the face of challenges. And once we've prayed, we've got to act. We've got to take a step. It could be as simple as telling a friend or colleague about what you learned in church while you're discussing your weekends, or telling your neighbor um, about something God has done for you recently. It could be offering to pray for a friend who's uh, sick, who's hurting, or who's grieving. It could be through acts of generosity, extravagant kindness, and taking the chance to speak of the love of Jesus through that. It could be through seeking out those people on the fringes, the refugee, the homeless, the addict, and taking the time to speak with them and be with them and speak of the hope that we have in Jesus. Especially in our own suffering, when we face disease, infirmity, failure, or loss, this is where we become most distinct from non-Christians. The quiet joy a Christian can possess, joy that makes no sense to a non-Christian, is a powerful witness to the truth and the hope of the Spirit dwelling in us. In each of these cases, the Spirit is an aid, giving us the strength to persevere, a goad prompting us to speak, and a guide giving us the words to say. And the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and minds. He is the power to be effective in our outreach and evangelism. And he is the power to grow our church. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. And so Jesus' disciples were prepared like us, they had the foundation of proofs to stand on. They had the power to fill them. And finally, Jesus is promised to return, which is my third point, the promise of Jesus' return. Verse 10 says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ is coming back. I've always sensed a little bit of mischief in the words of the angels. Why do you stand looking into heaven? It's almost like they're saying, come on, stop standing around. There's a job to do, and it needs to be done before he gets back. It's not just any job, it's the spread of the kingdom of God here on earth. The promise of Jesus' return is both a spur to action and a beckoning light, a source of hope towards which we strive. We have something to look forward to. Christ is returning. I'm currently listening to a series on Audible called The Wheel of Time. It's an epic 14-book fantasy series by author Robert Jordan. Sounds long? Well, it is. While Robert Jordan was writing the series, he was asked about whether he would ever finish it, and he replied that the very idea of the wheel of time is that it continues to turn forever. In fact, every book in the series begins with the same phrase. 
Every book starts with this phrase, there are neither beginnings nor endings to the wheel of time, but this was a beginning. Well, Robert Jordan died writing his 12th book, and unfortunately for him, Brandon Sanderson, who took over, had different ideas. He mercifully finished the series in two books, bringing it to a grand total of 14. Even though I'm currently only on book 10, I feel like the end is in sight. The final battle, the ultimate climax, they beckon. The resolution that I've been waiting for will come, and the interwoven stories of a myriad of characters will be tied together, finally making sense of a chaotic world. And we have a similar hope. We don't face the empty, hollow grave of an atheist. We don't face the endless cycle of life after life after life of a Hindu. Christ is coming back. The angels in Acts said he would. And we have a glorious resolution to look forward to when Christ will return triumphant, when he will restore this world, when he will right every wrong, and when each of our stories, with their triumphs and disasters, will make sense as we see the part that we played in his story. We look forward with longing hearts to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How great it will be on that day to bow the knee and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. To know that we've played a part in God's story of the redemption of his people. This is our spur to action. We have a job to do, and the promise of Christ's return urges us on, and it gives us hope. How we live our lives now matters in the light of eternity. Just like those first believers, we can hold to the promise that Christ is returning. And so, to conclude, we have firm ground to stand on. These proofs of Jesus' resurrection, which give us courage to stake our very lives on his claims. His resurrection is proof that he is the Son of God, and we can trust him. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, a power which fills us with joy, which prompts us to speak, which guides our words, convicts hearts, and would turn our world upside down if we would learn to trust him and submit to his leading. And finally, we have the promise of, Christ, of Christ's return. Jesus may have bid farewell on that hilltop outside Jerusalem, but he certainly didn't leave his disciples. He equipped them with all that they needed for the task. And he has been with them every step of the way throughout history, just as he continues to be with us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word and of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he has left us well-equipped for the task at hand, that in his going we have the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to work within us and through us for your glory. And so, Father, we pray that we would take courage in the fact of your son's resurrection, that we would submit to your spirit, that we would be sensitive to his leading, to his prompting, that we would um, be bold in taking chances to reach out, to be your witness to the world around us. And we thank you for the promise of your return. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming back and that um, 
all suffering and injustice has meaning in light of your return. And so we pray, Father, that as a church we would um, continue to spur one another on and to reach out to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.